Hello, everybody, and welcome to Best Seat on the Couch, where we only ask the important questions, like, who is Mo, and why does he have a hardness scale? My name is Alex. I'm Iris. I'm Marcus. And I'm Michael. And today, we are talking about the anime series Land of the Lustrous. Directed by Takahiko Kyogoku and produced by Japanese animation studio Orange, the series premiered in October 2017 and ran for 12 episodes. The anime was adapted from the manga series of the same name by Haruko Ichikawa, which ran from October 2012 and went on indefinite hiatus in December 2020. The story takes place in the distant future, after the Earth has been struck six times by large meteorites, destroying most life and reducing the world's continents to a single island on the sea. After an unknown amount of time, the island became inhabited by sentient, immortal jewels, and a new society was formed. Phosphophyllite, the youngest of the jewels, is tasked with cataloging the world in an encyclopedia as they are too weak to fight the Lunarians, the mysterious race of people who harvest, who harvest the jewels for their bodies. But Foss soon encounters Cinnabar, a jewel who has been exiled to the Night Watch, and soon begins to question their place in the world and the secrets that lie within it. The series was met with many positive reviews and was praised for its animation, story, characters, and inventiveness, with some calling it the best anime of the season slash decade. In particular, the computer graphics, or CG, was well received, with critics calling it one of the best-looking TV anime in recent memory. And, as always, there will be spoilers. So with most anime that we bring to uh, the Couchcast, I believe I am the only one who has watched this uh, uh, in the past, that is to say, before this past week. I watched this anime uh, in college when I was on uh, my anime binges with my roommate, I believe. Uh, and I remember hearing good things about this anime. I remember hearing it was really well animated, um, uh, great 3D animation, great story as well. And I watched it. And the funny thing is, when I brought this uh, anime to the podcast... All I could think of was the beautiful CG animation. I did not really think about the terrible undertones of the story. But upon my rewatch, man, this, this story gets heavy real quick, real fast. Um, I, I'm definitely going to talk about this later, but I, there's this like indescribable feeling I have when watching this show. It's not... It's not quite loneliness as I watch it. It's like if you're if you're walking on a beach just by yourself with no civilization anywhere and you pick up like a rock or a fossil or something like that and you have this realization of like the magnitude of time that lies within this single rock in your hand. That's the kind of feeling I get when watching this show. It looks like a... I, a cutesy uh, anime about gem people, which I guess we've already talked about on the show. But yeah, this this series is really something else. I, I do think it's heavily underrated, and I highly recommend that more people give it a shot and watch it if they get the chance. It's on Amazon Prime, uh, but you can pirate it wherever you want. Um, but yeah, this 
this show is lonely. This show is introspective. This show has great action and a great soundtrack. And I don't think we find a lot of media that has all of these things blended so well together. I just think this is a great show in general. And I think everybody should give it a chance and watch it. Uh, but what about the rest of y'all? This was all your first time watching Land of the Lustrous. Uh, so what were your first impressions? So yeah, I mean, I really like Steven Universe quite a lot for a number of reasons. I think the the whole uh, setup with like all the jewels and their, you know, these, these uh, you know, agender feminine coded alien beings made from gemstones and they patrol and they fight against, you know, threats from outside our world and, you know... And, I'm really honestly, that was my first like thing before I even started to watch the show is like, it's the same setup. And I did a lot of research to try and determine which one came first. And I literally cannot narrow it down because the closest I can sort of pinpoint of when Steven Universe, like when Rebecca Sugar first started working on Steven Universe, uh, falls within a, a nine month time frame. And the Land of the Lustrous, the manga, the first edition was released right in the middle of that. So I genuinely don't know which one came first, and it's astonishing that, at least superficially, they have so many similarities. That is, of course, where the similarities end is on a superficial level, because Jesus Christ, this story. I have, I've, I, I gotta put this anime, like, maybe not quite, I mean, not in the same ways, I guess I'll say, but I will put it in the same tier as Madoka Magica for, like, emotional trauma, Having watched it because Jesus Emotional Christ, damage. This really <laughs> hurts. Like, I, I love what you said about loneliness, and I think I might even phrase it as not necessarily loneliness, but emptiness. The show has a feel of just like a void, a vacuum, empty space, right? And these lost and traumatized, essentially, you know, thousands of year old children wandering about trying to make sense of anything at all right and it's like the more time goes on the more we understand you know each and every character it's like yeah everyone's got their own fucked up traumatic backstory that like deeply affects everything they do right it's not just their their sort of you know bizarro quirks uh there is a lot of just like Madoka Magica was sort of this gruesome kind of horror it's a lot of death it's a lot of uh injury it's a lot of like you know depending on how you want to talk about like the transformation into witches like a lot of like really bad like gruesome shit this show doesn't quite do that in the same way because the 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 characters sure undergo a lot of physical injury but it's not like blood and guts they're made of crystal it's you know shattering and shards and such which is like brutal but it's not gruesome in the same way what to me really hit me when watching this was like just the amount of like existential horror that this show directly and indirectly poses you know all these questions about identity all these questions about self the loss of self you know all these uh like really horrifying like truths about the reality of living forever living eternally and what that means for like who one is and how one moves forward through the infinity of time not to mention that just the fucked up circumstances of like being constantly under attack by endless waves of intruders who want to literally smash you into little bits and use you in jewelry and they've done so to a bunch of your friends 
but you know you can't just give up on them because if you were able to you know steal enough of their pieces back you could put your friends back to get it's like horrifying so much of what happens you know the fact that if you take a hard enough hit to the head you can forget like half of your existence because it literally got scraped out like just so much of this show is deeply disturbing in the, in the implications and the reality of the lives of the the gems, the jewels. I don't know what their term is, but the, they don't have a name. The wiki calls them jewel people. I'll call them the jewels because that helps me distinguish from Steven Universe. Uh, deeply horrifying. Not to mention like the trauma after trauma after trauma that a phosphopilot goes through. So yeah, this one was a rough one. This one hit hard. Adding on to that, Iris, I think that like. Out of all of the very good stuff that this show does, I think that it, uh, it is in its best when we see Foss's kind of transformation throughout this series. Yes, like yes, literally, it's like it's you're able to witness someone get more and more, uh, <laughs> jaded. Maybe is the word. <laughs> nice <laughs> oh, God. i mean perhaps traumatized you know perhaps uh cynical you right know, if you're looking um, for a word with less double right. I, I couldn't escape the the rock pun though um so yeah you were between a rock and a hard place on that one. <laughs> Ugh. like this very slow and like Oh my god, it's it's a beauty to watch like i'll, I'll talk about this later because this is going to be my favorite moment but there is a point in like episode nine i think where i'm like like i i sit there and i'm like oh my god that just happened and like it's there is so much this 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 series feels really deep like all of you have said so far but in a way where it is somehow like concise in its deepness like, this is only 12 episodes of 22 minutes long, and I feel like we've gone through, like, this strange journey together. And it's not even freaking over. Like, Alex, what the f- what have you done to me? Like, <laughs> why, why isn't it over? I need this trauma to be over so I can, like, process it and get over it, but it's still going. It literally feels like it's barely begun, right? At the end of season one, there's all these unanswered questions. Yeah. Like, they've just started to ask the questions. Yeah. Like, literally, uh. imagine all of the trauma. And, like, this again, we're comparing this to Madoka Magica. I don't think that, like, this and Madoka Magica are definitely up there. But imagine, like, a lot of the trauma of Madoka Magica, but, like, compressed into the first third of the plot of Madoka Magica, right? Where you begin to see all of the stuff and then these sort of hidden... Uh, upper truths start getting revealed but they haven't gotten there yet so like it only leads me wanting more of like i need to know what the frick is going on with master congo and the lunarians and what happened to the flesh people like i like i think that one of the things that they expertly did was they in the fourth episode no fifth episode the fifth episode is when she goes out to sea right yeah and it's either the fourth or fifth, but whatever. Um, like, they begin to tell the mythology of the whole, like, oh, there used to be humans, and then they were split into uh, bone, freaking flesh, and soul, right? And the coolest thing that as not ever, but the coolest thing happened to me in that moment is I'm not sure if I believe them. You know what I mean? Like sometimes mm. when people talk about backstory about their the the inner machinations of their universe, you're like, 
Okay, I, I accept that, and we move on. We try to, like, you know, how, how does, what is, what implications to the story does that have? But the way that there is still so much vagueness about this universe has me sort of, like, it has me, like, waiting for, like, no, maybe what they're saying is, like, an actual misunderstanding of what the universe is really like. And, like, Okay, we're go- we're going back to Sanderson. Are you ready? Oh boy! <laughs> so I was waiting for it. Where's the magic system at? Well, okay, so not necessarily the magic system, but I've been reading Mistborn, as Alex knows. Um, Wait, really? And I know this as a spoiler already. It's not. I'm gonna try to do as little, as spoiler little as possible. But you know, in the first part, they very like not expertly, but they 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 plot out the magic system of the burning of the metals and all of that stuff, but. It's only later on in, like, multiple books later and in different books as well that you realize that the magic system that is part of that universe is just, like, one perspective of the actual true magic system. And that kind of stuff blows my mind. Forgive me if I'm getting that slightly incorrect, but that is how I kind of... That's the hints I've been getting. Anyway, I don't... I don't know what more I can say about... um, About... Land of the Lustrous, other than its world has intrigued me more than a lot of other things have. Uh, and as any good anime watcher, this is the point where I say, you should read the manga, Michael. <laughs> I, maybe, yeah. The, so, the so... Mistborn manga? <laughs> the Mistborn manga? Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> this was this was, this was Sanderson's uh, pandemic project. It's a manga. <laughs> oh my god. Alright. Well, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to go over my watch experience first because this is a story. So, like any cultured individual, I Google Land of the Lustrous Amazon Prime to watch this show. And you know, lo and behold, Google, you know, presents the the link to the Land of the Lustrous anime on Amazon Prime. I click it and it immediately starts playing an episode and I'm like, "All right. We're right we're just jumping right in here." The first thing I see is this fucking gem named Paraparadsha with holes in her chest, and she's, like, just waking up. And I'm like, okay, we're... I don't know who this is. I assume this will be very important, because she seems to be a central figure in this entire thing. Um, then, uh, the fucking uh, Rutile, the the doctor gem, passes out. And I'm like, that's weird. Uh, you know, I'll get to what that actually means later, but she just passes out. And it's like a joke. And then... Uh, Foss and Paraparacha have this talk and they talk a little bit and then Paraparacha passes out and I'm like passing out must be a really important aspect of this of this show's like plot progression why are these gems just randomly passing out well I kid you not I get through the entirety of this fucking episode and I'm sitting here being like wow I have no idea what the fuck's going on like one of the one of the scenes in this episode is that uh, the the current Foss, the short hair with the golden arms, walks by kind of a mirage of her younger self looking in the in the pond reflection, being like, oh, I'm so cute, I'm so, like, perfect, I'm ready to, you know, talk to Master Congo. And, like, I didn't know what the fuck that was. I thought that was a different individual. <laughs> I get through, I'm watching the credits, and I'm trying to figure out why I can't select the next episode from the episode <laughs> list. Like, Amazon Prime is telling me, watch uh uh, what was it made in the mist and i'm like but why can't i just watch the rest of the show 
Well, turns out I watched the last episode by mistake. This is entirely not my fault. By the way, I assure you, listeners, I am not a fucking idiot, and this is not my fault. I just... Amazon Prime gave me the last episode on autoplay. I just I don't, don't know... understand how you get, like, even ten minutes into an episode and not realize that, like, very obviously they are expecting you to know these characters and places that you don't know. Well, to be fair, and, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, having actually gone back and been like, oh, you know, I'm actually a fucking idiot, uh, you know, watching through the show. <laughs> Paraparacha isn't really, you know, this important is true. to this the This is point, true. You know, she just kind of gets dropped in there, regardless of whether or not you started episode 12 or episode 1. Like, that's just a thing that happens. So, like, can you blame me? Yes. I don't blame myself. That's what I'm trying to say. Although, I mean, we'll get more into this when we get to our theory corner, but I do believe Pad Paracha is going to be big later on. uh, It's purely because of, you know, the way that she's uh, drawn on the cover of the manga. But. So, my idiocy aside, I will say one benefit of having watched the last episode first is that you get to see a what what is i mean you guys have alluded to this it's a horrifying honestly transformation of phos phos i'm going to say phosphophyllite because that's the way the japanese people like intonate the synonyms <laughs> so uh the way that phos starts out as this you know kind of like airheaded uh lighthearted generally laziest shit gem and turns into this this destructive force of depression uh (laughs) essentially like that seeing where she ended up first and then going back and seeing the progress from where she started to where she gets to that point was terrifying and it's uh you know you guys have already said it already this is a very emotionally heavy show and of course it also has a lot of things going for it exceptional music great animation probably some of the best 3d cg animation that i've seen in anime uh so far but the other i guess point about my watch experience is that after i finished uh all 12 episodes of the only season i decided to essentially spoil myself on the events of the manga so i'm not going to spoil you guys because that would be cruel uh but uh you are correct this is really just the beginning and i am it's there's a lot that the the the, the uh, comparisons to Madoka Magica are apt in the sense that compressing the emotional trauma of the entirety of Madoka Magica and then placing it in the first third of Madoka Magica to simulate what the first season of Land of the Lustrous is, well, the trauma does not stop. <laughs> it does not get better. Uh, it only gets worse. And uh, the the concepts of self and eternal life and, you know, purpose in in an eternal life continue to come up in more and more you know interesting and cruel ways i guess i mean because the concept of eternal life like there is a deeply horrifying aspect to it regardless and then to layer that on top of eternal life in a deeply and profoundly not eternal shell right a vessel right these bodies that are extremely fragile you know, like to the point where uh, the the jewels are like afraid of like contact, like physical contact, you know, between two jewels of different like Moe's hardness scale ratings, right? Like because it'll seriously damage them. 
That's even worse. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's definitely a trip down the emotional uh, alleyway, for to put it lightly. Um, but why don't we dive into our favorite moments and favorite characters? And I do want to save mine for last because I want to hear what uh, all of y'all have thought about uh, the anime. But yeah, go first, um, Michael. I'm gonna steal it. I'm sorry. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe this is out of left field. Uh, my favorite character is Antarcticite. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because, oh my god. And my favorite moment is also related to Antarcticite. I believe that arc is just the entire volume three, right? It's, I, I mean, manga, whichever yeah. volume it yeah, is, I think it's definitely, like, the the highlight I, I of season is. one. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, I, I believe I looked it up. The first chapter of Volume 3 is uh, First Battle, where the two Amethysts and Foss are, like, fighting the big thing. But mm-hmm. the last, the first chapter of Volume 4 is Spring. So you have the whole winter arc during that period. Anyway, uh, in order to explain why Antarcticite is my favorite character, I need to explain my favorite moment, which is in Spring. The first episode of Volume 4, a.k.a. Episode 9. Because, God, they really they really knew what they were doing, huh? At the end of Episode 8, right, we see Foss, now imbued with his gold-platinum alloy, attempt to rescue Antarcticite to no avail, of course. She, like, throws a thing, and it doesn't work. Um, and, like, at the end of the episode, I was like, Damn, like, this is, God, that, that was, oh, man, ah, oh, damn it. And, you know, all of those feelings of just, like, why can't anything good ever happen? And, like, she's literally stuck in a box of her own creation, this, like, melted gold that she's consumed at this point. And then I'm like, okay, I watched that episode. By the way, I, I binged the entire series, like, at 3 a.m. in the morning, like, oh two God. days ago. So damn. it was very, it was very, I was very deep in the moment. Um. But then you get to the beginning of episode nine, spring, and there is so much going on with what they have done to Foss, because not only is her personality different, her demeanor is different, her gait is different, and her appearance is different. Literally, the only thing that's like, quote unquote, the same about her is her hair color. And when I was looking at it, I was like, I was watching him like, is is this Foss? Like I was in my head, I'm like, am I like this is Foss, right? And like, I only now think about it, but I'm like, that is exactly the question that they wanted me to raise. Like, mm-hmm. is she Foss anymore? Right? Not only mentally, as she's gone through this entire trip of being alone without her quote unquote like real mentor that she's had, the first real mentor she's had, like Amethyst, whatever. Um, <laughs> like. And, and she, like, to her own, she really believes, and to an extent she's right, that it is her fault that Antarcticite is, is gone now, right? And she is haunted by that the entire rest of the series. We see that in flashbacks. Not flashbacks, but hallucinations. But also, she is no longer Foss physically. She, like, her arms are gone, replaced by gold alloy, and... Her memories that were stored in those arms, which, by the way, is a really cool concept that, like, your memories are stored in your body, are gone, right? We see she's like, who the frick is Cinnabar again? 
And <laughs> God, there is so much that comes together in that beginning of ep- beginning of episode nine that that was when I was like stunned. I was like, Oh God, it all makes, it's all like, it's, it's all happening. And it like, God, you see also the freaking gold stuff is, is beautiful. Um, yeah, like, Oh man, that's, that's all I could say. Cause I might've lost for words, but that's my favorite moment. And picking back, uh, Antarcticite is so cool as like how that came about. If that makes any sense. That's, that's really all I have to say about that. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've hit kind of on the core thing of the the show. The core question of the show is like, what does it mean for Foss to still be the same person? Right. And I think the, the, conceit of memories being stored you know in various parts of their sort of homogenous jewel bodies right and you know there's some memory stored in you know your your legs and your arms and etc i think is a fascinating way to directly link the concepts of the fragility of their bodies to the fragility of self and identity right and it's it, it turns physical consequences into very directly turns them into these emotional consequences and to lose part of their vessels is metaphorized is exactly the same as losing part of themselves right which is sort of the crux of this very existential like the existentially horrifying premise of the show right is that as time goes on and their bodies accumulate damage that damage is transferred then to their minds their personalities their memories and i honestly would argue that the Foss that we see by the end of the show is not at all the same person as the Foss we're introduced to and perhaps you know the core of that you know, person uh, from the core of the Foss that we met in episode one becomes the core of the Foss we see in episode 12. But on the whole, they are different people. And you did talk a lot about what I was going to say was my favorite moment, which for me, I would say, like the climactic part is the uh, conclusion of uh, episode eight. You know, the whole sequence with the finding the new arms and Foss losing control and the Lunarians attacking, Antarcticite being... uh, you know, overwhelmed and taken away. And then Foss, finally, finally, this... They have been on a mission, right, since the very first episode to become somehow able to fight, you know, to find the courage or the willpower or the strength or whatever they were lacking to be able to fight. And finally, they find it within themselves to, you know, push away kind of this instinctual fear, this wanting to hide, this wanting to get away. That's what's going on with them being trapped inside this, you know, this box when they, you know, first are getting the new arm. They start chasing after the Lunarians, right? Uh, Antarctica in pieces in their hands. Uh, They start chasing after the Lunarians, get to the edge of the cliff. There's the whole big thing, right? Also, a heart-wrenching moment when they try to run, the way that they have been, the way that they've gotten used to with the new legs and suddenly find themselves unable to, which is another big point about the loss of self, loss of identity, is the the changing of Foss's body, you know, as time goes on. The loss of the legs leads to something new. The loss of the arms leads to something new, yet the loss of the old, right? And it's these irrevocable changes that are, like, bringing new things in but also pushing old things out. But in any case, they try to run, find they don't have their speed anymore, but they're doing kind of everything that Antarctica had tried to teach them with the sword, with the the gate, with the demeanor. We have the same sort of run up along the cliff that we've been seeing them try and fail to replicate so many times in the prior two episodes. They, you know, reach out through the sword and it's all set up 
to make us believe that this would kind of be that turning point, right? This would be the moment where Foss finally finds that inner strength and is rewarded for it and, you know, does so just in time to save Antarcticite. But this isn't that kind of show and this isn't that kind of story and they're not going to give us that. And I think what makes that moment in retrospect even more brutal is I think an episode or two later where Foss is like, I wish I'd never tried to throw the sword. If I had just reached it out instead, it's like if I just had better control of my abilities, if I just had better control of my new physiology, if I just was a little bit more skilled, I could have saved them. I could have saved Antarcticite. Uh, and I do want to just hone in on one little line that to me kind of sums up uh, Phosphophyllite's arc. Which is, I believe, in spring, um, but maybe, maybe episode ten, whose name I can't remember. Um, Shiro, I think it actually isn't Shiro. Uh, they're talking to Bort, right? Bort, the you know, kind of ice cold and very uh, hostile uh, demeanor, the 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 strongest, uh, both in terms of hardness and in terms of skill, uh, of all the jewels. You know, the the indisputed, you know, top of the pack starting to regard Foss for the first time with something other than contempt and derision, just kind of observes them and asks, you finally got what you wanted. You finally are strong. Was it worth it? And Foss replies, nothing good has ever come of it. And that to me is just such a striking moment, such a striking uh, uh, summary of, this poor little baby's character arc, and I feel for them so much, and there's no going back. There's no becoming the person you were before. Uh, I'll, I'll continue to kind of uh, ham on this, this particular area of the latter part of episode 8 and the beginning part of episode 9. There's, that, uh, there's the whole concept of sleep as well. And, you know, Foss, as she loses parts of her body... I'm not necessarily sure if this was intended, but as as a gem, they have, the explanation is that they have these little microorganisms inside them that feed off sunlight, and that's what allows them to move and, you know, do things, live in the sunlight, but they are, get tired. They can't do anything at nighttime. Um, and the way that I saw it was that as Foss begins to lose more parts of her body, she relies less on that. She doesn't have as much gem part of her that relies on the microorganisms to absorb sun, so that's why she foregoes sleep. And then you get that that hallucination scene or that nightmare sequence, I suppose, where she imagines because uh, all they were all they were able to save was Antarcticite's foot um, in the bull, and she imagines or they imagine that Antarcticite is just like standing there or just kind of being in the bull, uh, and then she fr- she fractures uh, like, and that's why then you realize that Foss fell asleep. And that's why she doesn't want to go to sleep anymore. She's haunted by the specter of her mentor uh, and can't get over it. She she decides to forego sleep so that she doesn't have to deal with that anymore. Again, very depressing stuff. Um, one of my, I think one of my favorite moments, though, and I think kind of one of the bigger turning points of the show's tone uh, is... I want to say it's in episode two or three. It's when Foss gets dissolved in the snail, essentially. Yes. Um, like, in in episode one, you see... Uh, I don't remember their names. It's the pink one and the gray one. Uh, they're fighting um, They're fighting the Lunarians. Uh, they see Heliodor has been con- you know, turned into arrows. Uh, there's a big fight, and 
uh, Master Congo is very mad, so mad that he shouts and uh, you know fractures those two gems as bodies, but also Foss's because Foss's you know hardness three point five uh, can literally get shattered just by Congo ex- like yeah, loudly yelling. Um, so you see that and you're like, this is the introduction. This is the mechanism that they use to introduce how they're put back together. They are effectively immortal, but their bodies are fragile. So you come into that and you're like, oh, okay, so these, they can't really die. In fact, they collect Heliodor's crystals so that in one day they'll be able to put her back again. That's, that's a weirdly positive way to look at it. Then Foss gets fucking dissolved and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> Does she get? Does she come back from this? Like, are, are, are you going to be able to live after you know? Regardless of whether it's or not, it's heat or acid. They don't specify, but you see like the eyeball floating in the miasma, and like you're you're, you're just like, Foss is fucking dead. Like, there, there's no way you can get put back together from that. Um, and I think that was just a real. That was that was a moment where, you know, this show wasn't fucking around. This show was like. I have given you a way to essentially up your look at a, give you a positive outlook on the way the show is going to go. And then I'm going to tear it down in the next episode by throwing this bad guy at you and dissolving our main character. And, you know, of course she does come back. Um, but that's the first instance of a true, I don't, it's not really a character death and there's no real, there's, there's no, you can't tell if Foss has changed after being, removed from the shell of the snail and put back together in gemstone form but that was scary regardless of what you you know how you see it that was scary to me so Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's like one of the moments that is true visceral body horror almost because like you said like the eyes floating around in the transparent body of the snail and there's a moment where we see like the snail's organs itself as it like incorporates foss into the shell yeah, that whole scene is, uh, again, just kind of like, before this, it's been cute gems all along. And then now you're like, oh, God, okay. <laughs> um, I think I think I'll cop out and say Foss is my favorite character just because of how they change and their arc. Um, I do want to shout out, though, Master Congo and Shiro. I feel I love the Shiro episode probably because I love dogs, um, but yeah that that one moment when Shiro this like Lunarian who is like big um, like multi armed Ashura type deity comes down and gets like cellularly cellularly divides every time it's hit eventually gets split up into these like tiny dogs that are some of the cutest things I've seen in anime. It's so great. I love it so much. I would like to point out, every single time that Master Congo starts to fall asleep and then smashes his head into a nearby (laughs) pillar, I audibly laughed out loud. It was... I don't know why I find that so funny. Not not only any random pillar, it's implied that it's the same (laughs) fucking pillar because it's got this gigantic hole in it. (laughs) I... I do, I do have to say, we've been talking a lot about the kind of horrible and, like, dreadful moments of this show. This show is also really funny in some places. In some places. Um, there's a lot of jokes um, and lightheartedness that kind of contrasts against the darker aspects. But I want to talk about my favorite moment, which is uh, the ending of the series, episode 12. 
and I think you mentioned it, Marcus, um, the scene where we see Foss uh, walk past her past self. Uh, I think that moment really solidifies the theming of this show, the the fact of like irreversible change that happens in uh, to these jewel people. Because I could, I could kind of relate to that moment. Because there are lots of moments I I believe in our lives that we have these moments that we're not prepared for that come randomly and swiftly and that change us for better or for worse. Uh, and it's not always physical. Uh, like we can't always see the difference before and after these monumental changes in our lives, but. Like you said, seeing the difference between young Foss, who is bright-eyed, who's uh, like has uh, a sort of childlike charm to them, who's still naive and uh, wondering about the world, to the newer Foss, who is militaristic in their gait, uh, who is like straight-backed, who. Uh, even the eyes are different. Um, like they're narrower, they're more serious. Just like seeing the two of them uh, walk past each other is just like heartbreaking in a way, and but also relatable. I feel like, and that relatableness, I think, was what drew a lot of people to the show, and is what we're kind of dissecting uh, and getting into about this show as well. Yeah. Uh, and I do want to take a moment to talk about the uh, art and animation. Oh, uh, oh my God. The series. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> um, because I really think that the cinematography of this show is one of the best I've seen in, at least in anime. I, I, don't want to say like out of all media because there's a lot of great like stylistic choices directors can make, but the the framing of certain shots, uh, for example, like whenever they're out in the grasslands of the island, a lot of the shots are either from so far away that you can only make out these jewel people as like tiny points standing up from the grass, or are shot up close to the ground where you can only see the sky. There's no other features of this wall of like the island. And that includes the the like school, for lack of a better word, uh, that they're in, the walls of the school, the hallways, the kind of arches. Uh it just gives a sense of uh like you said, Iris, emptiness uh and loneliness that's found in this world, which it's pretty apt because it is a world where all life, except for on this island, has been destroyed. So it should feel empty, and it should feel uh, like devoid of that that charm we find in our day to day lives. Uh, but yeah, what did you all think about the uh, animation and the CG in this anime? I think that either the animation studio or uh, the author in whom entrusted this animation studio to work with are geniuses. Namely, because I don't think that this kind of 3D animation would work for any anime. I think that it would, it really only, not only, but it really, really works well 
for this source material. Because, one, the 3D animation is surprisingly emotive. Like, they're able to get a lot out of the stuff that they have. Like, I'm looking at um, facial expressions and hair. Like, hair really mm -hmm. somehow is still, still feels vibrant um, and uh, flows really well. And the amount of facial expressions that they're able to capture. And I would, I would like to add, without having to resort to classic or tropey sort of anime chibi kind of stylings you know the sort of classic anime stuff where they over exaggerate mm -hmm. and stuff like that it really feels like they hold a lot of that back but mainly because they're freaking gems the 3d is it like it's i i was like i don't think this could have been better if it was 2d you know what i mean like somehow they were able to suss out that like oh yeah 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 no using a 3d model here is perfect because they're literally made of like their their skin is like made of polished quartz and like their hair is made of like shiny rocks and it it means that the 3d models are allowed to look like that like if they tried to do this but they were being like oh let's try to make it look human it would not look good like you can tell that Master Kongo has this sort of uh, stoic thing about him. Like, he barely moves at all, except the parts where he slams his head into a wall, of course. <laughs> and there isn't, like, a lot of... Um, how? What is the word for it? Uh, there isn't a lot of ver variety? No. Um, shading, I guess, in his, like, skin. It's very monocolor, which is, like perfect because he's a rock like i guess that's like the only <laughs> way i could put it i don't know why it's i it's it's good it is the best use of 3d animation in an anime that i have seen i think like and and specifically not trying to be photorealistic i think that's another big part of it is that they're not trying to like we're gonna have a rock like on the screen <laughs> right like they made rock people but they didn't need it to be actually photorealistic. And I think that they did a masterful job at that. Yeah, and just to follow up on that, I think the big victory in using the CG animation for the jewels is just how solid the models feel. And that's something that can be a problem if you're trying to do, you know, CG animation for you know, human characters is that the, the, the models feel too stiff, feel too solid, feel too like sturdy. Right. But in this case, they're literally rocks. They're literally rocks. They're supposed to be solid. They're supposed to be rigid and unmoving. Right. And I'm thinking especially of all of the scenes where Foss, uh, you know, in the, in, in the last three episodes where Foss is just kind of standing, looking out over the cliffside and all the butterflies are flying up and landing on their face, on their nose, on their cheeks, because they are standing so like stock still with a human character that would be unnerving. That would be uncanny. But for phosphophyllite, this non-human literal rock, the perfect stillness feels right. It feels like it makes sense. And the solidity of the models, I think really adds to that. It's one of those cases where I think the medium and the details of the medium were chosen with a lot of intentionality to fit well with the material that they were trying to produce. I would like to also small, small addition. Whoever did the Foley on this series deserves yes. like an, an anime Oscar. I don't know what those are called. 
the crunchy award. <laughs> but like literally every single time that they step, it sounds like a freaking rock on marble. And I'm like, that is just amazing. Like, oh, so good. When the, when the two amethysts knock their heads together and it's just, <laughs> <laughs> just like that made me feel uncomfortable. Not to mention the, the gems in universe. Um, I think there's, you know, obviously I agree with what you guys have said. Uh, and I, I really like the point about the intentionality. I think there's a lot of, subtle techniques that uh studio orange which by the way also animates the b stars anime yeah so <laughs> as as you can tell they are married to that furry money and they are not gonna give it up so um is hold on no i don't think land of the lustrous is is a furry thing at all well i think what marcus is saying they're doing furry stuff instead of adapting the rest of land of the lustrous oh oh I thought that was because the author had it on hiatus. Oh, but, well, well, I mean, yeah, but the manga is still out there. There's like, plenty there's still, of like, manga that hasn't been animated. Yet. Five, mm-hmm. uh, six, seven mm-hmm. volumes still? Yeah. I, I believe the, the anime only adapts up to volume four. Volume five. Four. Oh, sorry. Yes. The new the next volume that isn't the anime is volume five. Correct. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, I, I think that the intentionality is there's a lot of subtle things. Alex, you touched on it on how the cinematography during battle scenes has very specific angles to kind of emphasize the vastness of the world and the beauty of the colors of it, but also its emptiness. I think that the, the way that the show, the show tells the show, I didn't want to say the show shows you, but that's exactly what I'm going to say. The show shows you <laughs> that, um, this is a, a vibrant, colorful world of 28 gems and uh, Master Congo having a grand old time. Well, fewer than 28 now. Sag. Oh. Oh. <laughs> um, with, with that small caveat that this world is completely empty aside from them. And the way that they animate some things, like, essentially says that. And it's really interesting that they don't have to... They don't have to rely solely on just, you know, background narration or or world building to show the viewer that this world is beautiful and has gems, but is also completely empty and desolate and infinite, as, as Iris puts it. Like, they, they do the same thing with the gems. They're all, you know, vibrant and they're glistening and they're sparkly. Like, there's a lot of, there, there's kind of some jokes around how they all like, you know, glimmer in the sunshine and stuff, but... The way that they light certain how certain gems aren't glistening when they're talking about, you know, like, for example, Yellow Diamond, how every single one of her fucking partners is dead, like, in the past. <laughs> like, she's, you know, like, sulking in the, you know, in the twilight of sunset with, you know, the shadows cast super, you know, large across the, you know, the gigantic hallway. Stuff like that is, it. it's chef's kiss. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring that back. It's chef's fucking kiss. And it's like... It's really, really well done, and I, I, I would probably say it's uh, to Michael's point about whether or not it's the author or the animation studio. It's probably both. Uh, there, there's two, you know, marriages of you know the author's idea of what wants to be conveyed through the world and how the studio, how Studio Orange brings that to life with really masterful CG animation. To me, I think the the biggest victory of the animation as a whole is uh well there's two things i want to i want to like point out as being what i loved because we've talked about the fight sequences we've talked about the fight choreography and the the framing of those shots which is stellar and you know the actual fight choreography itself is also fantastic just the way that these characters move but the way that they animate 
these characters moving. The fluidity of their motions, the smoothness of how they run and jump and swing a sword and, and you know, just bounce around, I think is absolutely spectacular. Because given that we just talked about, you know, the way that the, the, the 3D animation really gives the character models a sense of solidity and rigidness, they move with anything but rigidness, right? They are, it is smooth the way that they run across the ground, the way that Bort's hair flaps, you know, like uh, fly in the wind behind them. Uh, whenever Foss with, you know, super speed before they lose that, like goes zipping across the world, the, the, like the intricate ways that the camera sort of will twist around the, the, the jewels as they are in mid jump, you know, who they are themselves twisting about. I mean, it is just so smooth. It is buttery smooth the way that they they move around and particularly in the fight sequences the jumping the flipping the grappling everything is just like so just delicious it's rich is what it is it's it's it is a rich display of motion in a way that really honestly kind of counteracts the the rigidness of the the models the rigidness of the gems themselves and so it's this beautiful contrast you know that they can be so stiff and unyielding and you know in this physicality and yet like have their motion be so well articulated like that to me was uh one of the one of the the best parts of it another thing i want to point out that they must have put a lot of effort and a lot of time into is the way that they animate fluid the way that they animate liquid in particular uh cinnabar's mercury and foss's gold's alloy um it is like some of the most detailed fluid animation I have ever seen in any animated property ever. Like, hands down. Just the, 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 it honestly at some points looked a little bit out of place, you know, it like it looked a little bit like overproduced uh, compared to everything else that was happening around it. But it felt to me like that was a conscious choice. It was intentional to have like that, that this like hyper realistic almost level of detail being applied to every time that they're pulling out these pools of water. Because it would have been so easy to do like, you know, do like what Avatar does or do like, you know, what just about anything else does. And, you know, it's like, oh, our, you know, our character is summoning a big sort of floating bubble of, uh, you know, gold alloy. Okay, it's going to be kind of vaguely... Um, you know, ellipsoidal, and it's going to have, you know, some parts that are bulging and some dents in it, but it's going to be kind of like that. No, they, they like, went to the extremes. Like, they kind of, like, the pseudo-fractal, like, I think they must have actually done, like, 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 chaos simulation of, like, real fluid dynamics and, and done that, because I do not believe that they could have, like, intentionally chosen, okay, we're going to have this little ripple here and this little, like, offshoot there. It's, it's, it is gorgeous the way they animate that and in particular i'm thinking of the uh the two times that we see foss kind of do a little surrounding bubble around themselves the box when they first get the arms and then later when they try to interrogate the lunarian the the my eyes were just drawn to the fluid it's so detailed it's so realistic it's like so much money must have been put into rendering (laughs) that like my god it's fantastic um, I did want to add one small point, and you actually already brought this up, Iris, about the way that uh, Foss, Foss's gait changes uh, as uh, they g- gain the weight of the gold alloy arms and stuff. Um, when when they're first when they're first given the quartz legs, and they're moving essentially at hyperspeed, like 
it's like a giddy child that doesn't even know, like, can't even stop themselves when they're, like, running across the field and they're, they're ecstatic with their speed. Uh, and then later, like, even as Foss is just walking, they're walking with such weight. Like, they're weighed down by something. They're, they're weighed down by this tremendous weight. And it's not necessarily localized on their arms, even though we as the viewer know that. But they walk so much slower, much more ponderously. They it is pointed out, that... actually, that the, the alloy is dispersed throughout their entire body. Right, right, yeah. It's spider webbing, essentially, through the entire body. But they're they're just, they're walking with, with a, not necessarily laziness, but with a, with just, like, not slow motion either. It's like a mixture between the two. It's like trying to move faster, but not being able to. I thought that was really cool. Which ties in perfectly with, I mean, two things. One, just sort of the way that, like, the heavier footsteps indicates uh, a jewel of, like, higher power. You know, someone who demands more respect, in particular, Bort, has just got the clunk, clunk, clunk of the footsteps, and suddenly Foss is walking around with the same thing. And also, like, it's another example of this metaphorizing the mental changes with physical ones, right? As as Foss's cheerful and bubbly attitude is weighed down by the death of Antarcticite, their physical body is weighed down by the addition of the alloy. And so the physical reflects the mental. I think that's like sort of this kind of central theming that it keeps coming back to, right? Physical literal, changes. Literal emotional baggage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you will. I mean, the physical changes mirroring or um, analogizing mental ones. It's like poetry. It rhymes. <laughs> I, I can't oh. believe I made such a good point and then you ruined it. <laughs> I, I had to throw that one in there. It, it, you segued perfectly into it. Oh, God. Yeah, I, that's a great point, Iris. I I really like that sort of analogy that you, you've drawn. I also want to mention that uh, the the decision to do 3D was made by the director, Kyogoku, but Ichikawa, the author, had a big hand in developing and adapting the uh the manga to the anime so you can definitely feel the creative spirits from both of these uh directors in this anime uh and i do want to quickly touch on the music before we talk about um the lunarians in congo because my god the music is amazing uh i feel like the music again heightens the atmosphere and uh the feeling of emptiness in the world but some of the tracks are just beautiful on their own. I'm thinking specifically Cinnabar's theme, which is the really sad like violins uh, that plays in these really, really like lonely moments with Cinnabar walking on the beach or when Shiro like disappears in Congo's arms. just love the music of the show yeah i wanted to like the music yes like the music is very very good it's very very poignant in all the places where it needs to be i need to talk about the op though holy crap (laughs) the op i think is actually one of my favorite ops i've listened to mainly because like uh okay how do i explain this i'm gonna try to do this as quickly as i can 
someone could probably write like a musical analysis essay on this on the op but um i feel like and this is just my feeling on the animes that i've watched but a lot of anime ops um generally stick to kind of like poppy rocky classic like classical kind of vibes right usually very strong um sense of pulse and beat and it kind of builds in and of itself and then kind of climaxes halfway through the song and then you get the sort of ending bit right this op which i believe isn't actually in the first episode they started in the second episode yeah the first the end of the first episode but yeah right 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 the first uh few bars or whatever are uh they have this am- ambi- am- ambiguous beat to them and i would see i can't replicate it for you right now but literally every single time i watched the op afterwards i was trying to mentally count along so that i would actually land on the correct downbeat when the beat actually came in because that first part is so ambiguous as to where the beat is because it's not only um the there is no backbeat but the singer is singing um she is singing technically she is singing on beat and then like an eighth note afterwards and so you can construe the beat as either being her first note is the downbeat or her second note is the downbeat and there is this crazy ambiguity that happens when i'm like trying to count it out where i'm like oh god oh god and then when the beat comes in you're like Okay, I can feel it now. That is something that an anime OP that has not done to me yet. And I don't know why, but I love this OP for it. Those are all fantastic thoughts, and I'm just, like, consumed with wanting to talk about the Sunspot theme. Do it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we could go right into the Lunarians from this. Oh my god, the Sunspot theme, like, truly has destroyed me as far as, uh, what a beautiful, fantastically done... A uh, way to just convert fear and dread into like pure sonic form. Oh my lord! Um. So the, the the Sunspot theme, the Lunarians, you know, showing up theme uh, is broadly, I did, I did a little bit of research into this. It is broadly made up of, uh, it is Gamelan, which is an Indonesian, Javanese, Southeastern Asian uh, musical styling or, or um, ensemble, right? And... Uh, it doesn't actually, it uses a different tonality than we're used to in Western music. It doesn't use uh, an eight note octave. It's, um, you know, depending on where you are, it's either going to be a five or a seven note octave. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure which version is being used in this show. But it's, you know, these metallophones being played in what our ears, at least, or at least to me, you know, very attuned to Western music, recognize as not discordant, but definitely not like harmonious in a way that I'm used to. It's sort of this, like, unplaceable, unrecognizable... It's definitely harmony, but in a way that is, you know, to my ears, just, just like, 
there's something off about it. There's something not right about it. Because um, a good amount of gamelan actually uses, uh, you know, toning uh, systems with uneven intervals is another part of it. Um, so it's a lot of unfamiliar harmonies all being overlaid over very, you know, like Hitchcock-esque horror strings. You know, the 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 the, the long drawn-out violins, you know, of just like like inching along, you know, changing pitch ever so slowly, which you know, is anxiety producing in and of itself, but together they produce this this theme that is hauntingly beautiful and yet deeply terrifying, right? Uh, which very much is like the Lunarians themselves. You know, they've got this, this this strange ethereal beauty. And it's worth pointing out that the actual, like, visual designs of the Lunarians are also sort of uh, this this Balinese, I believe, um, inspired uh, thing. So that, you know, there's a whole uh, cohesive kind of cultural inspiration being taken here. Um, but just this blend of... Eastern and Western music and the specific choices of them, I think, is 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 masterfully done. Uh, and truly, I feel like I'm going to be hearing that theme in my nightmares for like years because it's <laughs> amazingly awful. It's deliciously awful. Speaking of nightmares, uh, every time I heard their theme, it was like when I heard if anyone here has played Breath, played Breath of the Wild. Yeah. Whenever I hear the Guardian thing theme, where you're like, "Oh <laughs> fuck, I don't want to be hearing this right now." <laughs> the laser starts like shining. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's exactly it. And I mean, there's there's the whole design of the Lunarians is honestly, I, I think the 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 idea of like beautiful and yet terrifying, you know, beautiful and ethereal and otherworldly and terrifying is incredible because like everything from the way like when they show up this like fractal blossoming out in the middle of the sky the 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 ranks on ranks of these like serene looking archers just like kind of flipping up from this hanging down position and then the the metallophones playing and the strings wailing in the background it's just like such a deeply effective and shockingly cohesive uh aesthetic to it has anyone seen those images or, or videos of like the the literal accuracy of biblical images types things where they like oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 it's like that where they're just like I didn't expect this to look like this but now I'm I'm terrified the angel with a thousand eyes <laughs> yeah. saying be not afraid <laughs> which I think really speaks to how like to to the Lunarians it almost feels like fanfare the way that they they're just like entering they're like rejoice we have come to remove your lives <laughs> and you will be happier for it like that's the kind of vibe they give off which as iris said is is beautiful it's it's celebratory and boisterous but also terrifying if you're on the other end of that it's and also like the way they just serenely like stare death in the face like i don't even know if they're real people or if they're just like you know, constructs of the, the, you know, whatever system, but the way they just like, they, 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 they fire their arrows and they, you know, like serenely, like just stay, you know, don't react to the jewels rushing up with, you know, death in their hands in the form of a sword. And they just watch their friends and then themselves be killed without even reacting. Like, Oh, it is uncanny. Oh, it is uncanny. The first, the first big Lunarian has, their fucking head sliced off and you see the smile this is like a sly smile as she reaches into her head and pulls out the fucking heliodor arrows it's like the fuck that was pretty that was pretty spooky. <laughs> yeah they they truly are an alien uh enemy but an alien enemy cloaked in something familiar like you said the they're humanoid in appearance but they whenever they the are the gems or the jewels try to attack them they just dissipate 
like water vapor, like clouds. And so it it feels almost like our protagonists are fighting against this unbeatable, unstoppable enemy, something that rolls in uh, and is not able to be controlled, just like the weather itself. Yeah, they're probably one of the more deeply unsettling antagonists uh, in anime, just just based on their concept alone. And I really, I really like them for that. There's also the fact that they don't give anything away, right? There's no information to be gleaned from them. There's no individuality, no personality. I mean, obviously there's the different like forms of them, but that only really is relevant to like what kind of threat they pose because the the whole system that the jewels have fallen into is they show up, the 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 jewels respond, go to them, kill as many as they can, try not to die in the process and then they disappear, they dissipate, they're gone. And three days later, a new identical patch of them shows up. There's no indication of, like, where are they coming from? Who are they? Are their forces being depleted? Are, you know, is is this drawn-out, like, centuries or millennia-long struggle, like, impacting them as much as it is us? Like, they truly don't know anything about them. And the jewels have been fighting them for thousands of years, you know? And that's, I think, part of this uncanniness and part of this, this just, like, kind of all-encompassing... They're not a force that you can whittle down or bargain with. They're not, you know, an opposing group of people. They just truly are a fact. And that's terrifying. Definitely. All right. And before we wrap up this episode, uh, as this is still an ongoing story, we have a trivia wall. Uh, or a theory wall, not a trivia wall. <laughs> That'd be interesting. Yeah, the trivia is over in that corner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I have three theories that I've made up, um, and I'm going to give one to each of y'all. And so feel free to uh, agree, disagree, or pose your own thoughts or your own theories to the ones that I've come up with. Uh, so, Marcus, I'll start with you first. Uh, Marcus, your first theory is, uh, is Congo good or is he bad? Well, I mean, he's, uh, 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 <laughs> what a question. Uh, I mean, for the record, this, this premise is not exactly fair. <laughs> I guess I should say, do you think Congo is in league with the Lunarians? No. I'll, that that one I think is easier to answer. I'll say no. And I think it's because uh, we don't... Re- well, I mean, we don't necessarily know the extent of who Congo is. He snaps his fingers and can blow away an entire Lunarian you know, garrison like that. So, he's obviously got some kind of latent magical powers but he also it doesn't seem to be a gem uh it seems to be more human than a gem which speaks to the theory of when uh a snail lady goes on the monologue about how humans you know split up into three uh essential factions or whatever um i don't think he's the only in the only indication that we have from the anime uh that congo might be in league with Denarians is that he knows who Shiro is. And he's like, oh, Shiro. What's up, dog? Um, and, like, <laughs> that's... 
it's a suggestion that they've met in the past. It's not a suggestion that they're in league, and it's not a suggestion that I think Congo's uh, Congo's own like wants and desires align with that of the Lunarians. That much is certainly not true. Um, so I think that Congo is just kind of doing his own thing. He very much cares for the gems that he has under his tutelage, and I think that is not going to change. So as long as that's true, I think he's at odds with the Lunarians, at least in that regard. All right. May I give have... may I give a counter theory? Yeah, go ahead. I think that Congo Okay, I actually don't know this cuz I feel like I read somewhere that Congo has like gem like skin or something. Like he's he's been able to smash his head into a wall for Christ's sake. But <laughs> Yeah, but like there's there's been plenty of like humans That's true. in anime who can do that. I think that okay, here here we out. Ready? Hot take of the episode. He is the last human, okay? Oh, yeah, no, 100% he yeah. is. And, I was saying this to Alex. And what the Lunarian's goal is, is not just to steal the gems, but it's it's to, like, reunite with all of their parts to become human again, right? That's what they said. They, they kind mm-hmm. of wanted to do. And so, uh, Congo is the only one where, like, they've seen the dis- like the the aftermath of humanity and doesn't want humanity to come back right he wants them to stay separated mm, i like that take i mean well if we're all doing our congo takes i've got to like throw my hat in the ring real quick uh first of all yeah congo is 100% the last human the last remaining human um my take is that he was once affiliated with the lunarians like he used to be their leader or he used to be someone very important to them commanding you know them in some way uh sense no longer is doing that but they still sort of defer to him they still recognize him either as their former leader or as the last remaining human or both right because there's that whole scene where all these lunarians showed up and were like reaching for him like grabbing for him either like you know as like a you're our savior help us as or you're the complete version of our incomplete selves Right. One of the two. I also believe that Congo has some kind of ulterior motives, you know, some kind of hidden agenda that he is pursuing separately from the Leonarians or the Jewels. I think he is kind of he's got his own agenda going on that might not be in everyone's best interest. All right. Wow. This uh, theory corner turned into a bunch more theories than I planned. Uh, All right. Uh, Iris, your theory is, will Foss replace more of themselves in the next season? And if so, how many more times? I... That is tricky. I mean, because we saw the the thing, right? Like, the, the thing I knew was coming at the very end of the season where Zircon, I believe it was, was like, uh, I was thinking of, you know, getting rid of my arms and getting something cool like yours. And it's like, mm. I knew that was going to happen. As, as soon as it's like, oh, you chipped off parts of your body and now you're more powerful, that, you know, copycats abound. Given Foss's, like, deep understanding of just how much it has cost them and just how painful and traumatic and how much they can really never heal from everything that brought them their new arms and legs in more ways than one, they can never heal. I do not think they are going to intentionally break off more and, and replace more. If it happens, it happens. And that's, you know, in the, 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 the purview of 
you know, the, 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 the authors and the directors and such, but I'm going to stake my guess on no. I'm going to stake my guess on this is, this is the last time and Fossa's going to have to try and deal with this as they are now. Whether or not it happens to someone else, I have no freaking clue. It very well could. And it feels like the, the themes of, you know, this physical reflecting mental is too core and like completely abandoned. But I think them, and this might also be wishful thinking, I think they might be done with Foss. I have no counter theory to offer, but having spoiled myself on the manga, I actually do know the answer to this theory. And uh, that's all I'm going to say. I'm just going to lord <laughs> over my what? smugness what? over the fact that I cannot share this information with you, but that I know the correct answer. Intentionally, aggressively rude. I'm going to disagree <laughs> with Iris, and I think it's going to go even farther. They're going to replace everything about them, a ship of Fossius, if you will, <laughs> I hate you. I hate you. God. Jesus. And there it is. <laughs> All right, Mike. Uh, All right, last one is for you. Will the Lunarians succeed in creating humans again? Oh fuck! That's a <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I I I gotta say yes, and I think. Uh, yeah, I think it's going to happen, and uh, nothing good will come of it. All right. Well, to recap, Marcus thinks Congo uh, has the gem's best intentions uh, in his mind. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not, be- let's not twist my words here. I said that Congo doesn't necessarily have, like, isn't an antagonist towards the gems in any way, shape, or form. All right. <laughs> you have it right there. Uh, Iris believes that Foss will not intentionally replace more of themselves in the next season. And Michael thinks that the Lunarians will succeed eventually in creating humans. All right. Well, we'll find out the answer to these questions if we ever get a second season and if Studio Orange ever gets off of B-Stars. <laughs> we can only hope. Uh, that'll do it for us, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Your gem or jewel-related uh, YouTube video that you can watch is called Diamond Jack by Rachel Kim. And uh, like every good book club, we announce the next piece of media that we will be watching so you can watch along with us. We'll be watching Encanto next week. Yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. Check that out if you have Disney Plus or if you can pirate it anywhere. Uh Go watch it and uh, see if you agree with our hot takes next episode. But once again, thanks so much for listening, folks, and you will hear from us next week. Bye-bye. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye.